0: built to sell radio with your host john warlow well, welcome to built to sell radio my name is john warlow and today you're in for a treat we're going to talk to bo burlingham Now, you probably know Bo because he's an editor-at-large of Inc. Magazine and you've certainly seen his work. If you're an entrepreneur, you've probably seen his most famous book called Small Giants, which to me was one of the best books ever written on entrepreneurship. His latest book is called Finish Big and it's about how do you exit a business on top? And Bo is a a friend and just an amazing writer and interviewer, and so I wanted to have him on the show because he interviewed literally hundreds of entrepreneurs about their experiencing ed- exiting their businesses, some good, some bad. And so what you're about to hear is his lessons learned from all those interviews with entrepreneurs about how to exit a business successfully. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Bo, thanks for taking a few minutes to do this. It's my pleasure, John. Tell me about Finish Big. Why did you want to write this book? Well,
1: I guess uh, it, it really started with the series that I did in Inc. Magazine with Norm Brodsky when he, was, uh, he received an offer for his business. And we uh, decided rashly that we would write about how that played out um, month by month in, this, in, in very close to real time. Um, This was not a great uh, thrill to the potential buyers, um, but we developed quite a large following for the columns, and I began to realize that there was a real hunger there, out there, for uh, information about the experience of selling a business, and then when I went online and did a little research, I it, it hit me just how um, undercovered that part of the whole business process is. I mean, if you if you Google starting a business, you'll get something like 1.1 billion hits. If you Google exiting a business, you'll get about 27 million or about, you know, two and a half percent. So I realized that there was just like a big gap there. And I thought, well, uh, it'll be interesting to find out. Plus, I I should say that everything that I found uh, about selling a business was all about, um, you know, how do you get the most money for your business, which is certainly important. Uh, but there's a but I realized pretty quickly when I began interviewing people that there was a lot more to it than uh, than just uh, getting the best deal.
0: And and for those of you who haven't read the series uh, that Bo wrote with Norm, make sure you Google it. It's a tremendous series. You had me hooked throughout the whole you know the whole series, Bo. So uh, so great job. And and for for Norm. I mean, we can't, we don't have the time to recount the entire story, but what, was, what were some of the big takeaways that Norm had through the process of, of trying to sell city storage?
1: Well, he made, I, I think he would even agree that um, it wasn't a great idea for him to do it without uh, having somebody sort of a third party guiding him through the process.
0: When you say do it, you're referring to sell the business.
1: Yeah, I mean, it basically, he and his partner Sam uh, really handled the whole thing themselves, uh, which isn't necessarily the best idea. Um, and he would, I think, admit that it's not necessarily the best idea. Uh, he also realized that, that uh, he let the process drag on too long. But the main thing was that he realized after they had been negotiating for literally seven, eight months, something like that, right as they were about to close the deal, he suddenly found out that um, a a piece of information that was absolutely critical, which was that one of the people uh, on the board was the key decision maker and that And and it happened to be the person whom he trusted least. Well, he had already extracted certain uh, promises about how his employees were going to be treated after the sale. And uh, he realized that this information had basically been kept from him. And therefore, he couldn't trust uh, the uh, potential acquirer with keeping its promises. So he walked away from the deal, literally at the last minute.
0: And what was the the number on the table at that point? How how much are we talking about?
1: Uh, I think probably around 80 million, something like that.
0: Wow. And so he was so focused on how his employees would be Treated post sale that he was willing to walk away. Did you find that common in in some of the other interviews you did in researching the book?
1: I think I think for most people, not for everybody, but for most people, uh, it was a key factor uh, knowing how your employee. I mean, for Norm, in Norm's case, he knew or he thought he knew that um, if he that to get the most money, he would have. Uh, sold to one of the big record storage companies like Iron Mountain or Recall. And he felt that um, that they would just uh, buy the company and they wouldn't be interested in letting any of his people keep their jobs That all that they were interested in was buying uh, his customers and his boxes. Um, and, and so he didn't even... Uh, Include them among the uh, potential acquirers. As it turned out, much later, he learned that he was wrong about that. But uh, that was all in hindsight. In what way was he wrong? Well, eventually, uh, he eventually uh, sold a majority stake to um, a a company um, that's well. It's 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 essentially a publicly traded. A private equity company uh, called Allied Capital. Uh, He he sold that stake right before the financial crisis hit. Uh, Allied did not survive the financial crisis, and uh, its stake in um, in City Storage was then sold to another a similar company called Aries, Uh, Norm had sort of a contentious relationship with Aries, and eventually Aries sold to one of the big companies, Recall. And Norm was shocked when he discovered what a great employer Recall was and how well they handled everything, uh, and how well they, uh, ha- what a great job they did of taking care of the people. And he realized that he had made a bunch of assumptions uh, at the time that weren't necessarily true. Hmm.
0: So We should get people up to speed on this book process. So you've written a number of books, Small Giants probably being the one that I, you know, I love all of your books, but Small Giants was for me a really moving uh, book. And I know a lot of your audience loved it. So you've gone through the process of writing many books. Tell tell us about the process of writing this book because you sat down and and spoke firsthand with a whole slew of of entrepreneurs that had exited. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I I probably wound up talking to somewhere between 100 and 150 uh, people, uh, most of whom had uh, sold their businesses, uh, some of whom were sort of getting ready to sell their businesses, um, uh, a few who were actually sort of in the middle of the process. And um, what I found was that about half of them were happy and had moved on, and were engaged in something else. Uh, And uh, you being one of them. (laughs) Uh, And the other half were utterly miserable. Uh, They felt lost. Uh, They regretted ever having sold their businesses. Uh, They didn't know what they were doing. uh, And uh some of them were even sort of quite bitter about the whole experience and so i i basically said well okay what's the difference between the ones who had a happy experience and the ones who had an unhappy experience and i i came up with seven factors that i felt were sort of critical uh, distinctions between the way that uh The happy ones had approached the process in the way the unhappy ones had approached it.
0: We don't have time to go through all seven, but just give us a quick sense of for you what those, just for listeners, what the seven are, real really briefly. Well,
1: one of them was, and a very important one, was knowing who you are, what you want, and why. Um, That's, I found, one of the most important factors in running a business, let alone selling a business, uh, a second one was having a sellable company by me, by which I meant not just that you could find a buyer, but that you could sell it when you wanted to, uh, to whom you wanted to sell it uh, at a time of your own choosing. Third one was, you know, making sure that you gave yourself enough time to do it. A fourth one was, you know, being at peace with whatever happened to your family. Uh, the, the people who had been on it. And, you know, so it, I, I run through it. The, the most important one uh, was actually the last one, which was handling had to do with handling the transition from being a business owner to being an ex-business owner.
0: Hmm. We'll get to that in a second, Bo. but before we do that, just as you look through the the group of entrepreneurs that you spoke to, both the happy ones and the ones that were miserable and and bitter, um, I mean – Could you draw any conclusions about when you know it's time to go? I mean, people listening to this podcast will be saying, you know, maybe I should sell this year. Maybe I should wait until the economy really, you know, goes through its next big increase. Uh, I want to sell before we have another recession. I mean, how do people know when to hit the eject button?
1: It's going to be different for different people. Um, Frankly, every exit is a little different. Um for some people, they get bored. And uh, they just don't want to be in the business anymore. Um, for some people, you know, the other extreme are people who basically uh, want to be carried out feet first. Um, and then in between, you have a lot of other people. But the key factor is... And, and this is the most important point, is that you you must not, you really should not wait until you're ready to leave before you, you know, to start preparing for it. Why not? Uh, because there's a very good chance that you'll be caught unawares and you'll wind up in what's called a forced sale, um, which is, it, either you won't be able to sell the company uh, period or you wind up in a forced sale which is a situation where you have no choice but to sell the company to whomever will pay you anything for it and um and, and those are often really really tragic
0: were there any forced sale stories in your uh, in your book oh
1: yeah there were a couple um, i mean i suppose the, the saddest one had to do with bill malaiman who was the founder of Nyman Ranch, now, he had really, uh, in the uh, 20 or 25 years that he'd been in business, he, he transformed his industry. He'd taken a commodity, namely beef and pork and uh, certain other meats, and, and, ter- and, and turned them into value-added products. Uh, you know, Even today, if you go to a place like Chipotle, um, all of their beef, all of their pork is, uh, Nyman ranch pork. And you had advertise, people advertising, um, in restaurants, I should say, uh, advertising the fact that they serve Nyman ranch, uh, beef or pork or whatever. Um, he did that. He, he made, you know, he's, he had sales, I would say over the time of two or $300 million. Um. He got into a situation. Uh, it was actually during the dot com era, which you recall, I'm sure, uh, when uh, there, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of talk about how uh, the most important factor uh, in a business was to be the first mover, uh, to be the one that's out there and that's the best known and that everything was about brand. You didn't have to worry about profit, anything like that. The most important thing was to build a great brand. Well, Bill, unfortunately, well, he was surrounded by experienced business people who were telling him all this, and he believed them. And uh, at a certain point, uh, I, I guess it was in 2003, as investors, they'd already put a lot of money in the company. and. Everyone had been telling him that the brand was just sterling, that they'd make a fortune when they put it up for sale. Well, they put it up for sale, and they got exactly one buyer. Um, And they got that one buyer at a time when they were running out of cash. They had no choice but to accept that bid. At first, they were happy to find anybody because they realized, much to their shock, that the company wasn't in a situation, wasn't in a very good situation to be sold at all. Um, but then Bill went to work for the company. Within a year, he, was, he really had doubts about how it was being run. And he left. And all he took with him was a cow, a steer, and his founder stock, which turned out to be worthless, Because the uh, private equity company that uh, had bought uh, Nyman Ranch did what's called a washout round, which basically made the stock of the founders and the early investors worthless. Um, So here was a guy who was a pioneer in his industry, transformed his industry, had built this iconic company, and he wound up with nothing.
0: Can you go into a little bit more detail for listeners on what a, ra- a washout round is? Um, how could somebody so smart, seemingly be such a visionary, I'm sure surrounded by great lawyers, how could he have fallen for, for this washout round and, and, and what can we learn from it?
1: Bill was not a sophisticated business person. He was a, uh, he was a rancher uh, and a visionary. Um, But he had surrounded himself with people who were very experienced. Um, The washout round happened after they had wound up in this forced sale and they sold the company uh, to this private equity company, which, uh, you know, continues to run it. Um, A washout round happens when... uh, you know, you set, out, you set things up. Um, you, you have to go into the, and I don't want to do it now. We don't really have time for it. You have to go into the math of it. But essentially, what happens is that you do a round of financing that dilutes the early shareholders to the point where their stock isn't worth anything anymore. Uh, they wind up owning such a small percentage of the company that it's, 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 you know, they're washed out. They, 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 they don't have, uh, you know, they may own the stock, but the stock they own is pretty much worthless.
0: So in Bill's case, he did not take cash up front when he sold to the private equity company in the first place. He must have taken shares in the new entity, which gave them the ability to wash him out.
1: Yes. And that goes back to the point about a forced sale when you get into a for sale you don't have a lot of choice you've got one buyer you're about to go out of business because you don't have the cash to keep to keep going uh, and so you have gotta accept pretty much whatever terms uh, the buyer is going to offer And in this case the buyer offered to basically take the company off their hands uh, pour some capital into it to keep it going uh and you know basically run it in a way that would allow it to keep going after that the thing was that the company when they sold it because they had uh believed all this bo- baloney that brand is everything uh and profit is nothing uh which was which was all baloney um uh you know They had believed that, and when they actually went to sort of go out and sell the brand, which they thought was so valuable, it turned out not to be so valuable after all.
0: I guess a lot of people listening will be saying, yeah, but I mean, I've got a great brand. I've got a great reputation in my industry. I've got all these awards sitting on my shelf. Isn't that worth anything, Bo?
1: Might be. Um, People... Uh, tend not to be the greatest judges of the value of what they own. In fact, the people who always wind up doing the best uh, learn how to look at their companies objectively, uh, frankly, the way a private equity firm would. Whether or not you want to sell to a private equity firm ultimately or not, uh, private equity people are the most finicky buyers around. Now, they have very high standards because their own livelihoods, the success of their own firms, uh, depend on making good uh, acquisitions. Uh, and when you go and look and see what private equity look for and you learn from them, you will build a company uh, that's th- that is, that that is in fact, a, a sellable company. Um, you know, And frankly, your own business, uh, I constantly am recommending people to go use the Sellability Score and to go to the SellabilityScore.com be- as a way to educate themselves about what creates value in a company. That's your whole business, John. Right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bo. Appreciate the plug. The, I mean, I think we'd all be... Um, you know, aware of some of the obvious things that private equity companies look for. So certain amounts of revenue, certain amounts of EBITDA or profit. But what are some of the things that private equity companies look for that are perhaps less obvious or maybe a surprise as you went through the process of learning about this, that you were shocked that they would even care about such and such? Well, what are some of those things?
1: I I wouldn't say that I was shocked. But they, but there are certain things, and, and again, they're the things that you look at in the sellability score, like, for example, the uh, degree of concentration of your customers. Um, in other words, uh, do you have uh, certain customers who, that own uh, such a large percentage um, of the business that if you were to lose them, you'd be in serious trouble? um Another thing would be you know uh, dependence on certain critical people in the management team and also the uh, the opposite of that, namely over dependence on the owner um, you know can your can your company run without you? Um, you? you know there there are there are a whole bunch of things like this um, that, um, you know, he, he, here's, the th- here's the basic thing. What you need to be able to show a buyer is that the, the, the company has growth potential. Two things. Number one, the company has bro- growth potential and you need to uh, basically minimize the risk that it will achieve that growth potential. What people buy when they buy a company, is future cash flow, and if you can demonstrate that your business has future cash flow, number one, and number two, that the risk of it not getting that future cash flow is very, very low, then you have a sellable company, and that's really it. Um, and so you need to look at everything that is going to uh, that that a a buyer who you know is only wants to invest the, their money, buyers who only want to invest their money, uh, if they know that they're going to get a good return, anything that they might look at a weakness that might come back to haunt them later on. And you've got to eliminate that weakness. And the more of those weaknesses that you can eliminate, the higher the value of your business, the, the better... But of course, there are also other factors, and this gets back to a question you asked earlier, which is there are certain factors, uh, e- external factors, that are going to affect what you get for your business. Um, you, you know, Norm and a couple of other people in the book happened to sell right before, you know, at a point when uh, equity values were very high. Uh, particularly in businesses like his, um, you know, frankly because of the uh, the real estate bubble. Um, w- then we hit the um, you know the financial crisis, and in 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 the case of several companies in my book, if they had literally sold a month or two later, they would never have gotten the price that they got. So. You really there are a number of different factors that you know that come into play, and that's why it's so critical to be prepared. Uh, Because some of the factors that uh, affect what you're going to get for your company you can control, and some of them you can't.
0: So, Bo, let's assume that somebody's listening and say, okay, Bo, I buy it. I'm prepared. I've thought about this. I really want to sell. Um, What I really want to do is go into the negotiation from a point of leverage, meaning I want the buyer to come to me. I want the buyer to proactively approach me to say, look, we want to buy your business. Um, What can you tell me from all these interviews with entrepreneurs? What are the lessons that that we can take away from how they sort of marketed themselves to potential buyers, without necessarily losing all the negotiation leverage by you know saying they're desperate to sell. Any lessons there?
1: Um, believe me, if you're if you're desperate to sell, you're not prepared. Um, and by prepared, I I want to go back to a point you know that I make and finish big, which is that. Uh, Most people misunderstand the whole what what exiting is all about. They think an exit is an event that happens. I did, too, before I got into this, that an event is that happens at some point in the life of a company, you know, when the sale happens. The exit is not an event. It's a phase of the business. You have, a, you have the startup phase, you have the growth phase, and you have the exit phase. And there are actually four stages to the phase. The first stage is educational. It's basically uh, you, you, you find out as much as you can from people like you or from people like me or whoever uh, about what is what's the exit process all like? What are the pitfalls and so forth. The second stage is strategic. That's where you build into your company the kind of qualities that are going to make it uh, give it value when you go to sell. The third stage is the actual execution of the deal. That's when you go out and you, uh, usually for most people, they hire a business broker, they hire an investment banker, and they start looking uh, for potential buyers. And the fourth phase is, is, is the transition because your exit doesn't end with the deal. Your exit ends when you have actually moved on to something else. And for many people, that's very that period is very, very difficult. The mistake most people make Is that they start at stage three. In other words, they don't really think much about the exit until something happens. Maybe they realize they're not gonna live forever. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they just wanna, they have something else that they wanna do. And the first thing that they do is call up an investment banker or a broker. That's stage three. They haven't prepared, uh, you, you know, they haven't done the preparation. Uh, if they have done the preparation, the chances are that they're getting offers for their business all the time. In fact, they are turning away potential buyers because they have a business that has real value. There is a lot of money out there that's looking for, I mean, the last time I heard that the, the private equity firms this year have a trillion dollars in what's called dry powder. That is money, that's sitting in their funds that they need desperately need to invest, and they don't know where to invest it. There's a huge amount of money out there to buy companies. And if you have a company of value that has growth potential and that has been run so well that the chances of it's not achieving that growth in the future um, are going to, are, are minimal... You're going to be getting calls from people. You're going to be getting. And, and then at that point, what you really need is a guide. And you need and, and when I say a guide, I, my feeling is that the best guides are former entrepreneurs who've actually gone through the process of selling their own businesses and uh, in most cases, made tons of mistakes. Uh, in, 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 in the course of doing that. As a result, they have had a terrific education in how to sell a business. They also understand that for a business owner, the sale doesn't end with the deal. The sale ends with when you've moved on after the deal, which is a totally different perspective from that of a of a uh, an investment banker or a broker. For them, you know, the deal is over when, I mean, the exit is over. When the deal is done, they'll move on to another client. It's not over for you, the business
0: owner. So, Bo, when you think about a guide and you think about how to find a guide, I mean, where would you turn to if, if you were advising a business owner who needs to find an M&A banker or a business broker? I mean, what, what advice would you have for them?
1: Um. I would say that you sh- you can, you, you know, you network. I mean, there are actually a couple of people I mentioned in my book uh, who I have tremendous respect for. Uh, someone you know, Basil Peters, um, and a couple of other people who really have um, a lot of experience and in, in our former um you know, former business owners who have exited their businesses. Um, I, You know, you look around and you interview people the same way that you would interview a new employee. Um, you know, you want somebody who is, uh, or uh, a firm, but basically it comes down to a person who is very aligned with you. And, you know, that's not just anybody that you call up. It's not you, you call somebody up and say, you know, a business broker and they give you the name of a business broker. Well, you got to you got you to gotta, uh, go out and, um, you know, interview six or seven uh, and, you know, do your homework. It's like everything else in business, you know, those who do their homework. Uh, and do what's necessary uh, are going to have a better experience. And you know, and remember that the goal of this whole process is to be happy at the end of it. And uh, learning what it takes to be happy at the end of it uh, is is critical to understand. And, you know, there there are two ways to do that. One, you can go out and you can interview dozen, dozens of people uh, who have sold their businesses and, and learn what they've learned. And the second thing is that you can plunk down 20 bucks or whatever it is and buy my book.
0: Everybody's listening. is going to buy your book for sure, Bo. I'm going to make them. Um, talk to us about some of the best financial outcomes, because at the end of the day, um, I'm you. You definitely covered some stories in the book about uh, you know real success stories. And I hear I'm, I'm not talking about life success stories or fulfilling experience. I'm talking about hard cash. There were companies that sold for high multiples. What were some of the the success stories? What can we learn from them?
1: Well, um, there were two things. Number one, um, they, they were cases of people who had either done a great job of preparing their businesses and preparing themselves for a sale, or they were extremely lucky in their timing. Give me an example. Uh, well, it's, it's it's an example that in some ways I find a sad one. It, it, he, he's not actually in my book, but it's uh, Bernie Goldhirsch, the founder of Ink Magazine. Uh, he sold Ink Magazine uh, in 2000 for about $120 million. Why? Because he had to. He had just been diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he realized that he couldn't do what he had to do, um, you know, to... Battle cancer, and still do a good job of running the business. So he put the business uh, up for sale. Uh, his timing couldn't have been better, uh, and he got, you know, a a, a tremendous deal, a great deal, um, for it. That was luck. <laughs> uh, it was partly luck. It was it was uh, obviously he had built a great brand and. Inc. and there were people out there who uh, were uh, interested in acquiring it, um, and so um, you know he did. Uh, but but the fact is that he would never have sold it if he if he hadn't happened to get sick at that point.
0: In terms of the exit for the Bernie had. Um, and for those listening, Bertie Goldhirsch passed away soon after being diagnosed really with brain cancer, as I recall. Is that right, Bo? Yeah, that's
1: right.
0: Yeah. So, uh, $120 million as a headline number sounds like an enormous amount of money. W- was that a a, a, a huge multiple of Inc's earnings at the time? And do you have any visibility to that?
1: Uh, I think it was, but Bernie didn't share his numbers. Uh, um, Norm Brodsky uh, got a very good multiple of EBITDA, which is, is, is sort of a stand-in. EBITDA is earnings before uh, interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And it's basically a, a stand-in for cash flow. And that's what, that's what buyers buy. They buy future cash flow. And um, he got a very high multiple. He sold the business, sold the business itself for about 90 million dollars. and then he uh, sold a option on the real estate for about 20 million dollars. Um, so it all came out to about 110 million dollars. Uh, it was probably uh, eight or nine times EBITDA, maybe 10 times EBITDA. Um it was a very, very good multiple. Why was it a good multiple because of his uh, why was it that high? you know really, uh, timing had an awful lot to do to do with it. It was the right time to sell. Um, you know, and he looked at it from the point of view of, look, I could sell it now or I could work for uh, another 10 years and uh, hope, that um, I'll be able to get something similar at that time. Uh, But of course, there are a lot of risks, because a lot can happen in 10 years. As it turned out, had he waited, he probably would have gotten about half of of what he actually got for the company. In fact, when the company was ultimately sold to recall, uh, it was sold for half of what Norm had gotten. so you can't underestimate uh, timing uh, and, and you, you know what's going on outside your company as a factor uh, in this. But the, the, the other part of it is, was that he was ready. He had prepared. He'd already done a lot of research. He knew what buyers looked for. He knew, for example, that it was important to separate the ownership of the real estate from the ownership of the box business. Because some uh, buyers out there, you know, they wouldn't be interested in the real estate. All they'd want would be uh, the box business. And so he he made that change, which turns out to have been incredibly, uh, uh, an incredibly important thing since his real estate, which was frankly in a depressed part of Brooklyn at the time that he bought it is now in the hottest part of New York City, namely the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. And it's on, right on the East River. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to sell for somewhere between 200 and 300 million dollars.
0: The real estate that he sold for 20.
1: No, the real estate that he bought for probably about I don't know, about $7 million. He'll, he'll sell for about uh, somewhere between $200 and $300 million.
0: He'll make more off the real estate than he made off his company. that company. Yeah.
1: Um, but, you know, again, uh, it's not like there's a formula that you can uh, use to go. I mean, this this is shocking to him. I mean, the bidding for his real estate at one point got up to a point where he was almost – it was like, can I really ask for more than this when somebody else would show up? Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, but, you know, that's the way it goes. It wasn't something that he planned. On the other hand, uh, there were things that, you know, he had – done smart things, and one of the smart things was to separate the ownership of the business from the ownership of the real estate. That is, That was a key thing, and it was something that he uh, learned he had to do by doing his homework, by preparing for eventually selling his business.
0: When you think back on all the interviews, were there negotiation—take uh, us inside the boardroom— what what were some of the the kind of lessons learned in the negotiation process from the business owners who who exited their businesses? If we could draw out one or two of the kind of major lessons learned, what would you point to in terms of you know the chest the the brinksmanship associated with selling a business?
1: Are you talking about the negotiation process? I am. Um, well, the first place most of the companies I wrote about didn't have boardrooms. Um, you know, we're not talking about giant companies. Uh, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, private companies. Uh, um, and what it, it, the process varied from example to example. There were a number of companies that, frankly, um, were not for sale. And yet, they were really good companies, and uh, uh, buyers came along and uh, started courting them. Now, uh, if a buyer has identified your company as being something that's important to them, important to their future cash flow, um, you're in a very strong, you're in potentially a very strong position. Um, So you... Uh, you know I mean there's one case uh, that I know about that you're familiar with John Bobby Martin um, you know he didn't. his company wasn't for sale but he had a big company uh, done in Bradstreet that was very very interested in acquiring it and they kept coming to him and kept coming to him and, and you know his attitude was well Everything's for sale if the price is right. Well, once you take that attitude that everything's for sale is the price is right, sooner or later you're going to have to ask yourself, well, okay, what is the right price? You know, what would I accept? What would be too much for me to turn down? Um, And uh, sure enough, Dunbrad Street eventually got to that number, and he sold the company. He got a lot of money out of it, but there were a lot of other things he hadn't prepared for. And he went through an extremely difficult time after the sale um, because he hadn't uh, prepared himself for it.
0: Just give us the rough numbers on the Bobby Martin exit. So kind of what was the size of his business? What what did he sell it for? And then maybe let's get into some of those, the lessons learned from what happened after the sale, some of the things that.
1: I believe he sold it for about thirty million dollars. I think that was the number that he came up with. Uh, I'd have to go back and check. It was something like that. I have the number in my book. Um, uh, what he hadn't—he had there was there was a mistake he made, which a lot of people make, which is they they overlook the fact that when you're selling a company, you're not the only one doing the selling. The buyer is also selling themselves to you. Um, They're telling you whatever they need to tell you in order to get you to say yes to the sale. Um, The fact is that you need to do your own due diligence on the buyer. You need to understand what it really is that is leading, that the buyer wants to acquire that you have. The buyer will tell you they love you. They will tell you, they will tell you that they love your people. Uh, they will say that they uh, admire things you've done in their business as so much that they're going to uh, change their own business. Uh, they do all these things, and uh, I would say nine times out of 10, they're lying. Um, I don't know if they're consciously lying. They may mean it when they say it, but... These things actually don't happen. Uh, what Bobby didn't do, which uh, probably would have been better off if he did, had done, was to say, okay, well, why are Dunn and Bradstreet really buying me? Hoover's, it was, which owned Dunn and Bradstreet. And if that had happened, he would have realized that really it. There was only one thing they were interested in, and that was his intellectual property. He had come up with a way of doing sales um, and of uh, uh, training salespeople that was brilliant. And um, he had been doing very, very well with it. And Hoovers had sort of run across him uh, at a trade show and realized somebody from Hoover's had run across them at a trade show and realized that this was something they could do and it would be a great service they could offer their uh, customers. Um, But really, that was all they were interested in. They wanted that. They wanted the intellectual property and they wanted wanted the training uh, that they would need to uh, implement this in their company. As for the people you know, or the business itself, you know, that wasn't important to them. What was important to them was that they would be able to offer this service. Well, of course, the merger happened. Uh, there were uh, all kinds of problems that came up. People began getting fired or, or leaving because it was uncomfortable. And uh, every time somebody left, Bobby took it personally. To the point where he felt that he had to go get himself checked out; that he wasn't developing a heart attack. Uh, they actually hooked him up to a to do a stress test to make sure his heart was okay. And uh, you know he was miserable for, for, for during that period, um, but he was miserable because he was su- partly because he was surprised. I mean there were certain promises that had been made to him some of them even in the contract that just weren't being kept but by the time by by, the, by that time he really had no leverage because you know he hadn't yet received the full amount of money for the sale there were some being held in escrow and he wanted to be sure that he got the rest of it so it, it, you, know, you know those are the, that's part of the whole education process right john that's what that's what. Those are the kinds of things you need to know before you get into doing the deal.
0: Just for those of you who, who don't know, explain escrow for our listeners.
1: Uh, what happens is, is that there's a uh, there's a part of the co- contract um, which is, uh, I believe, it's called reps and warranties, representations and warranties, and it's basically. Uh, You, the seller, make certain uh, uh, predictions to the and and uh, certain um, uh, expectations to the to the buyer, and the buyer says, "Well, why don't we do this? Let's put the money away someplace in a bank account um, that." Uh, you know, and then if these things that you're telling me is going to happen do happen, I'll pay you the money, and if they don't happen, then I don't have to pay you the money. Uh, it often becomes a point of contention. Uh, one of the uh, the smart entrepreneurs I know say that when you sell a often. Well, there are different uh, conditions that are attached to um, every sale. Uh, In some cases, there's what's called an earn out where uh, you you actually get paid as you meet certain targets. Um, There's the reps and warranties where you have this money that's put in escrow. Um, The general rule of thumb is that you stick around until you've got all your money. Um, that you don't leave, uh, if, if, if it's possible, that you don't leave until you've actually uh, been paid everything that you've been promised.
0: Let's talk about the stories of post-sale experience, how people have sort of fared after the sale. Maybe you can share a story about uh, one that, that, that comes to mind from the book about about someone who has exited and has now found a a new chapter in their life and what we can sort of learn from from that experience about going through the sale and and what to think about uh, life will be like after the sale?
1: Well, I would say that there are two extremes. Uh, John, you're actually one extreme, uh, which is that Uh, When you had Warlow and company, you made a conscious decision that you weren't going to develop emotional attachments to it. And therefore, as I recall, when when you finally sold it and left and, you know, went on another adventure, taking your family to southern France, starting this new business and all that, you didn't have very many transition problems. In fact, I think you told me you didn't have any. Um, The other extreme uh is I'm thinking of a guy who actually got bored with his company uh, which was a uh, recruitment uh, uh, employee recruitment and uh, service um, and he he was he was he was the kind of guy who felt guilty because he he wasn't actually... Um, doing working at the level that he expected of his employees so he hastily sold the business without being prepared at all he sold it to a competitor it took him 15 years to get to the point where he was ready to move on Uh, he went through that entire time not feeling right feeling depressed not feeling good at all about anything, uh, but, but also not sure of why not. Um, in the end, he actually wound up getting a doctoral dissertation, doc- getting a doctoral degree, and he did his dissertation on private companies' owners who sold their business and what their experiences were. And in the course of writing that, it, it became clear to him what exactly he was missing. And it's what a lot of people miss when they sell their companies. Um, There are things you take for granted that some people, not everybody, not people like you, John, uh, that they take for granted uh, when they have a business, Uh, their sense of purpose, their identity, uh, the group of people they work with every day, uh, the connections they have there, uh, their structure, uh, their sense of accomplishment. When you suddenly, when you've been relying on that for ten, twenty, you know, years or more, and you suddenly don't have it, you immediately. It, what happens is you feel totally lost. The people who did well, and even even somebody like Norm Brodsky said that told me that he went through that period after he sold uh, City Storage. He was. He said he was very lucky because for two years he was still uh, pretty closely connected to the company, and it allowed him to ease himself into into this transition. And it would have been a lot harder, he said, if he hadn't had that time. But it's a, it's just it's a very very common thing. Now the people who do well afterwards and have really do finish big. Um, are people who figure out how to get those same things that they had when they had their business and 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 do them on a higher level? Uh, in other words, for more people. Um, and uh, you know, really, I'll tell you what I think it is. Um, you know, what do you talk about when you sense when you talk about a sense of purpose? You're talking about serving other people. I mean, basically, when you're in business, you're serving other people. At the very least, you're serving your customers or you wouldn't be in business. Uh, you're probably serving your family as well. For a lot of people, they're serving their employees or they may be serving their, their communities. Um, and what happens when they leave, if they aren't prepared for it, is they suddenly, you know, the question that a lot of people fear is when somebody asks them, what do you do? And, you know, it's a simple enough question, (laughs) but we all get asked that. You know, you go to a party and somebody says, well, what do you do? And really what they're asking is, who are you? And uh, if you are a former business owner, um, to say, well, gee, I used to be a business owner, you're not really saying what you are now. Um, and that can be very hard. But if you can figure out how to recapture that on a, uh, you know, on a higher level, um, you'll be happy. And the people I found who had really great exits were people. When you look at all of them, when I look at all of them, what are they doing? They're helping other entrepreneurs now. Uh, you know, Norm, uh, Brodsky spends about 30 or 40 percent of his time just advising uh, entrepreneurs pro bono. basil Peters you know is he he's travels, gives talks, writes, um, runs seminars and helps people sell their businesses the right way. I mean frankly John that's what you're doing. Um, you, you, you know you're what you're doing, uh, through the sellability score and and what you're doing with your with your new business is that you're taking the things that you've learned and making them available uh, to other people and uh, it, it's it's of great value it's it's of such value that people are willing to pay you for it um, and uh, you don't have any trouble answering the question um, you know what do you do you know what you do
0: very good point. And for me personally, I went through that period where I wouldn't characterize it as a sense of loss. But when people said, what do you do? Uh, You know, three months after exiting my last business, I really struggled with that question. And I did not want to forever be the guy who said, well, I used to you know, I used to play hockey, or I used to uh, be a professor, or I used to run a business. I, you know, I, I didn't want to be that guy, and so it was important, to your point, to find the next future. and And uh, nice of you to say that you think um, that uh, that we're helping some folks. So that's great, uh, Bo. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the book is called Finish Big. Uh, please pick up a copy; you will not be disappointed. Um, it was great to have you, Bo.
1: Okay. And let me just mention that if you want to find Finish Big or know more about all of this, uh, I do have a website. It's boberlingham.com. So um, feel free to uh, check it out.